your ability to connect with people is going to be more important than your ability to come up with peel switching or, or whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, if you take a group of guys and you get them to play as a team and to play with maximum effort and play it selfishly, you'll win. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of the Angolan national team and Telecom Bonn in Germany's BBL, Will Voigt. Coach Voigt is here today to discuss learning from players, servant leadership, implementing systems quickly, a fun segment of start, sub, or sit, and we go all in on the ins and outs of peel switching. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and take a second to leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube, and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Will Voigt. I think that you're going to offer a pretty unique perspective on the world of basketball at large. I mean, you've we were talking before Pat and I about you know you've you've coached on three or four maybe five different continents. Can you speak a little bit about that that those experiences and kind of all those different places and stops you've been at and how that's shaped your thoughts on the game? Yeah, I mean to me that's been the the most rewarding part of uh, of this journey. You know I don't know exactly what point I I kind of got that travel bug as you were but an appreciation of other cultures, other places, um, and an interest level to explore those things. So, you know, the fact that basketball led me to that uh, is really dumb luck. So to be honest, I had no idea that an American could even have a career as a coach outside of the U.S. You know, so that, that it ended up playing out that way is just incredibly fortunate for me. But that's probably you know been the greatest part of all this you know it's afforded me an opportunity to see places i would have never seen otherwise uh really learn cultures you know through the game and honestly even within the u.s like there are places in the u.s i don't know that i would have lived in san antonio texas if i had just rolled out a map you know so right it's just funny i mean the game opens up so many opportunities for you uh and i think if you're open-minded about them it can take you to a lot of cool places. Speaking of that, I mean, I can't imagine you would have, you know, when you started out thinking you'd be the Angola national team coach, but kind of moving into now the coaching and your role with Angola, what I'm curious about is in between the FIBA windows or the competitions, what is your role as far as with roster development, or maybe if there's a U20 team, what is your role in building rosters as the head coach and, you know, not obviously living in Angola. Well, I mean, honestly, that's one of the challenges I think 
most of the national team coaches anywhere and certainly in Africa face. You know, so obviously your players are going to be in the hands of other coaches the majority of the time, whether that's, you know, at the, at the pro level, collegiate level. I mean, we have young uh, players here in the U.S. right now. So I, I think it's important that you have open communication with those other coaches, but that you're also realistic about what they are going to do. You know, so I can't pick up the phone and, you know, call the Atlanta Hawks and say, why aren't you playing Bruno Fernando 35 minutes a game? <laughs> So I I think most of my time um, when we're not, you know, when I can't get my hands on our players is just keeping up with their development within their, you know, their own situations. And that doesn't mean trying to, you know, influence it in any way, but I want to know, you know, I want, I want to know how it's coming along. I want to know their perspective. I want to know their coach's perspective. You know, obviously I plant the seeds in terms of what, you know, what we hope their development looks like, where, you know, where we kind of envision they might go uh, as a player, but try to be respectful uh, of where those coaches are at. You know, I think my experience in the G League probably helps with that. You know, I've been on the other end of that, right? You know, being a G League coach with an independent where we were getting NBA guys sent to us, but then, you know, I had owners and their objective was to win. And then different NBA teams are sending different guys and, you, know, you kind of have all these competing things going on at once. So, you know, I, I hope I'm not that nagging coach, you know, coming at it only from my perspective. But so, you know, I, I think having a wide view of all the players in your pool, trying to know how they're coming along, try to envision, you know, a year out what your roster might look like, two years out, who are the young guys that you should, you know, bring into camp, bring into a window, try to give some valuable experience along the way. Those are all things that, that we try to do. What is the youth basketball like in Angola? Or, you know, the, when they're hitting U16, U18, are they playing in Angola? Or are, these, are they looking to go to Europe or the States then? Like, how is their development working? Yeah, well, you know, Africa is an interesting place. You know, we face challenges in terms of resources that, you know, very few people in the U.S. could really relate to. So, you know, this, the sad reality is that our players right now probably are best served leaving the continent in terms of their development, whether that is going to the U.S. to a, you know, a prep school uh, or going, you know, to Europe and getting into the club system. But we, you know, we're very fortunate in Angola that we have probably the, the strongest professional league on the continent. And so within those clubs, uh, similar to you know, European clubs, they have their junior teams and players have come up uh, through those ranks. But that's, you know, that's something that I think everybody understands with Africa. Like the, the potential is so tremendous just because, you know, to your point, like there aren't readily available development opportunities for a lot of these kids. And, you know, with the BAL, the NBA's new league coming in, um, there are already, you know, NBA academies being set up. Like the more that these things start to happen, the more players you're going to see coming directly from Africa into high-level basketball throughout the world. What do you do with these guys when you first get them to start to teach or build your, off- let's say, offensive concepts? We'll get into the peel switch <laughs> in a bit. But offensively, you know, what are you doing right away drill-wise or 5-on-5, 4-on-0, 5-on-0, however you build the whole thing? I think it's really important 
especially offensively, that you're not in too big of a rush. And I know, you know, from a coaching standpoint, we feel like, well, you know, we got to, we got to drill offense so that they get it. But I think the mistake is until you have a very firm understanding of your players' strengths and weaknesses, if you're putting, you know, whatever offense it is and then realize like, ah, you know, actually that's not a good fit for this guy. And then in my settings, right, where we're up against it, if I made a mistake of that nature, like that's really detrimental for us. So, I, you know, I try to put in our absolutes on both ends of the floor, you know, for us spacing, pace, ball movement, player movement, you know, defensively, same thing. Like, you know, certain principles that no matter who you are, like we're doing this. And then through that, really getting a solid understanding of where their strengths lie. And then, you know, once I have that, then we're starting to implement more offensive stuff. So, you know, it's kind of this whole part, whole thinking, right. Is like really coming at it from, from a five on five standpoint, from a, like a conceptual standpoint and then drilling down and then getting it back into the hole to make sure, you know, you, you didn't screw it up as a coach. Well, you then, once you kind of drill in the absolutes, I mean, are there times where then you'll just kind of let them play with these absolutes and kind of see what solutions they present to you or what actions, you know, hey, they like to do this or this guy. Is that how also you, you kind of figure out their tendencies and their strengths? Yeah, absolutely. And, and honestly, a lot of credit goes, uh, uh, one of my assistant coaches, Matthias Ekoff, who's Norwegian, uh, and going back to, you know, this whole you know discussion about basketball around the world. So he comes at it from a very different perspective than, than I do. And he was really pushing that early on. So, you know, I, I probably was more on the side of, of getting things in early, you know, some five on O scripting and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then getting to competitive things right away. And he was the one that, that was, I think urging that on early on and he was totally right. So one of the things that I learned and I don't think this is a secret, you know, like competing is a huge part of what we do. It's something I believe in as a coach. And so if you were to look at, you know, what's sort of the carryovers from all these programs, all the players would say the same thing. Like we turn everything into some kind of competition, like even if like running sprints for losers like we're you know we pair you up and you beat the person next to you so his point was if we're competing it's gonna force guys in to like do certain things because of the fear behind losing right or not fear is the wrong word right but they're competitive that you know so so to lift that from them and to give them to your point an opportunity to explore you know what we've given as a template has really produced some great things. And so, you know, Patrick, to your point, like that's absolutely how I approach it now is, okay, whatever, you know, whatever it is, you know, some kind of secondary offense or, you know, whatever, like that we show them a few options and actions and then we'll just put clock up and it's hard as a head coach, it's wired like I am to not blow a whistle and to kind of take a step back from it but we do, we let them get up and down and we let them kind of navigate through it a little bit. And what you discover is inevitably every team I've been on, they find something that 
I was not thinking would be their strength or I had never even thought was an option within the offense. Transition a little bit, these unique, you know, from a FIBA window and these unique timeframes you have to work on. And then I know last season with Bond, you took over midway through the season. So as you're coming in to a program that, I mean, obviously there's a coaching change, so it doesn't mean things are running smoothly, let's say. What kind of the challenges that are presented with that? And, you know, what's the balance between implementing what you want to do and maybe also then competing and winning games at the same time? Yeah. I mean, same concept. So, uh, you know, I had to really figure out what was the most important. So, I, I mean, I had a checklist of what I wanted to get to. And unfortunately, right, I mean, my my time frame was going to be, you know, four months longer than when it ended up being. Yeah. But that was it is like, okay, what's going to be the most important thing? And I've already kind of tipped my hand. So the most important thing for me was teaching these guys to compete. Mm -hmm. So when I came in, like that was the biggest thing is like, you know, hey, I, you know, I don't know what was going on here before, but this is how we do it now. And so introducing that into our culture, that everything was going to be done like that was my first priority. And then, you know, I mean... Uh, you do, you kind of run out of time a little bit, but again, I mean, I, I was thinking about pacing this out over, you know, a yeah. five month stretch and instead I got a, you know, a month stretch, but, uh, I mean, kind of a funny story to that. So when we played our first, my first game with Bonn was against Ludwigsburg and, you know, John Patrick does a great job, did a great job with that team. They went all the way to the finals and, we had not put in offense yet. So, you know, my priority was culture, competing, and then defensive concepts, which we were starting to introduce. So even then, we didn't really have the peel stuff in. I mean, it, it was, you know, the checkpoints. So we played that game, and they ran their offense from the former coach. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that was the plan. I was, you know, and, you know, here we are with a three-point lead, with like two and a half minutes to go and John to his credit made an adjustment and we didn't have enough tools in the bag offensively to counter it. And so that one stung, right? Because you really kind of felt like, oh man, but again, you couldn't, you know, who knows, we could have been watered down defensively if we tried to push that. And then, you know, we, we kind of were making our, our steps moving forward. So, you know, we go from that game. Uh, now we had a, a week to focus on offense uh, you know, huge outing against uh, Geeson. I, I, I think we scored like, I mean, it was a hundred plus. I know that there's something crazy, you know, and then Ike, right. So now, you know, now we're facing, you know, one of the better teams in Europe and champions league. And, and so it's trying to map out the opponent and what was realistic to have in and prioritizing what we could do leading up to that game. In terms of the research going in as far as about Bonn, I mean, how much did you know about their system? Were you watching film like when you knew that you could be getting this job? I mean, what was your time frame as far as prepping before you went in and knowing kind of what you're working with? Well, uh, I was coaching in, in a tournament in Dubai with a bunch of guys from the Philippines. So... <laughs> There wasn't much, um, you know, Bond reached out, they had interest. I was, uh, I had just was just getting ready to fly from Dubai. So we just won the championship. We were flying back to Manila 
to what I thought was going to just be celebrating and relaxing <laughs> a little bit. And, you know, I landed and 24 hours later, I was back on a plane flying to Bond. So as best I could, you know, I downloaded all their games, knew I had a long flight ahead of me and just stayed up the whole time. So by the time I got to Bond, I at least watched all their games up until that point. And then, yeah, I mean, I was scrambling uh, then to try to get a feel for the players. You know, obviously seeing them on film is different than uh, seeing them in person. But, you know, these are these are the things that you, you have to be willing to jump on, right? So, yeah. I mean, it wasn't ideal. Of course, I would love to have a summer and put together a roster and come in with a game plan and all those things. But um, at the same time, I wasn't going to turn down the opportunity uh, because I was given, you know, a short window to, to get ready with. Well, Coach, we, we'd be remiss if, you know, we didn't at least have a little bit of peel switch conversation and we are both deeply interested in it and I know that a lot of coaches are and so we'd like to take the time now to to talk a little bit about it and I think the best way for us we'd like to start is maybe just from a, a tactical standpoint and be having you talk about you know really what it is and what are some of the foundations of the peel switch defense. I think if you had to boil it down conceptually probably the two biggest differences uh, with the peel to, you know, traditional defenses are, are the concept that you don't trap the ball when you're beaten, you know, so kind of every other system I've, I've been around when somebody's beaten, there's going to be two guys on the ball until it gives it up. And this is, you know, that's the peel part, right? Is if you're beat, get off. Uh, so I think that's very different. And then the other one uh, that I think is important to the peel concept, which you know, I guess has some similar tendencies to maybe pack line thinking, but it's that you know you can handle a lot of these things from the perimeter. So we you know we do obviously a peel switching with your traditional baseline rotation, and that's usually a big. But the point is to to put in scripted uh, rotation to keep the ball contained from the perimeter. You know, so if I had to boil it down, that's where I put it in terms of concepts. When you started to develop this defense, I mean, what were what were the things that went into you utilizing this? Was it a reaction to what you were seeing offensively? Was it an idea you'd always had? You know, what made you start to implement these concepts? Well, I mean, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the players showed me it. <laughs> So essentially what was happening in, in some of our competitive situations, we had a, uh, an older player um, who was still very valuable to us as a shooter, uh, but you know, defensively was going to struggle with, with some athletic uh, matchups. And any time he got caught in those matchups, whether it was through a switch or whatever it was, they would communicate to him which direction to get, to get beat and naturally on their own, basically do appeal. And, you know, I saw it, you know, I saw it a couple of times and then just, uh, you know, start thinking about like, you know, Hey, they might be onto something here. And it just kind of grew out of that. Uh, and, you know, going back to Patrick's point earlier, the younger coach in me probably would have whistled them and been like, ah, like, what are you doing? Yeah. But, you know, to kind of stand back as a coach and, and watch what they were doing and, and see if it made sense. And then, so once in my mind, I started to, 
to come up with the concepts behind it, what I realized is that other teams at all kinds of different levels would do it occasionally just in emergency situations, right? So you would see that happening, uh, but it wasn't a system, you know, like it just, whatever the occasion was, like because they were thinking about how to help each other, they would do it. And so really all we did was to try to build uh, a system around that with a little bit more structure about well, where where would you peel to in certain situations. What are the on-ball principles then within the, this peel switching? I mean, I guess devil's advocate, does it devalue the on-ball defense as far as do people fall into the mindset, well, I can just get beat, I know we're going to start peel switching. So does it become a crutch or how do you kind of avoid that trap or that mindset? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, Patrick. I think you have to be mindful of that. But to me, I think the peel is best applied in a high-pressure situation where you're kind of, you know, I don't want to say you're creating the, the, the bad beats, but I guess you would live with it a lot more, right, if you were, like, climbing up into the ball versus sort of what you're alluding to where you got a guy that's, like, matador defense because he knows somebody's going to peel for him um you know i'd like to think we didn't have anybody that was doing that but i could see how that could creep in so you know for me i think it doesn't have to be paired to pressure but i think the more that it is paired to pressure the better and then the other thing too is you know at our level you know there are guys who you are are intentionally forcing to certain ways because they'll destroy you if they can get to their strong hand, right? So, so, and if you look at anybody that weeks a pick and roll, that's what they're doing. <laughs> you know, like they, mm-hmm. they, they're taking a completely open stance in which they have no chance of stopping the ball if there's not a secondary defender behind them, right? So the concepts aren't like completely foreign, uh, but I think you're right. I think you got to make sure that it's not perceived as like the safety net for bad defense. Can we kind of visually walk through a couple of scenarios? So, you know, if the guy's got the ball in the, say, left slot and he's driving towards the middle and and that guy gets beat, then what does that peel switch look like with the other players? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me give a a shameless plug. Yes, please do. Uh, (laughs) So anybody that's listening, um, if you go to my uh, Twitter handle, at Coach Will Voigt, you'll see uh, a, a tweet pinned to my profile that has a link to the video. Uh, and I think it is challenging when it's, we're just talking versus like actually being able to see it. Uh, so, you know, people that have questions after this should, should definitely go there and they'll see, uh, you know, PDFs, uh, diagrams and video clips. I think that will help. But essentially to answer your question, appeal, uh, you know, in your scenario, there could be kind of three different appeals. So, if that player on the left elbow, I think you said. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So if he drives, if, if he beats his defender to the middle, then the next defender, presumably located roughly around the nail area, uh, would take the ball, which isn't a new concept to anybody. But the difference is rather than, you know, whatever your principles are, whether, you know, whether it's a stunt and recover from that help guy or, you know, stop the ball and then get out to your own man. We are are going to switch it. And, I, you know, I don't know why peel was the word that seemed to make sense, but 
to, in my mind, you were peeling off of your man. I don't know. It's just how it clicked in my brain. And part of that too is sort of the angle that you come off of it. So if I'm beaten, when I peel switch, I'm peeling behind the guy. And that is a foreign concept, right? Like, because if you try to like cut it off and come that way, then it's just going to be, you're just going to all run into each other. So to peel behind to then recover to that next guy. So that's a middle peel. Now in your scenario, we can cover three peels. So that guy in the elbow drives left. There's the potential for a corner peel in which the man, you know, in the corner comes to stop the ball. And then the man on the ball peels off behind his offensive player to take the corner. And again, this is all the evolution of the defense, right? So, you know, I'm a, I'm a Spurs disciple. So we were, you know, strong side deny all the way and never would you ever think about allowing the ball to, to go to corner three. But, you know, I've, I've seen at least with our teams and I see it when I watch other games, like in some, some ways corner peels are the most effective ones. Yeah. Maybe it's just because offenses aren't used to it. But so you have that, and then the last peel would be the baseline peel. So if you were not able to stop the ball from the perimeter and he's now punctured your defense to the second layer, you would come across and, you know, whatever your term is, you know, baseline go or, you know, whatever it is, but that, you know, low weak side defender coming across to stop the ball. And in that case, this is really, to me, the only tricky one. So... We call it a, a clock, uh, and basically, if you just envision, you know, a, a, a clock and going one over yeah. the way that you know you would on on the minutes on a clock, so that everybody, if you think about it in a traditional defense, everybody off the ball would have been doing that anyway. So the baseline go, he's gonna, you know, help the helper. So again, you know, V back or whatever your terminology, sink that help the helper guy would have already been going there. That would have pulled the weak side top guy down. So he's already moving in that direction. So I don't think it's a, like anything new, but the biggest difference is whereas a traditional defense would require you to help and then get back out to your own, we don't. So you're already going in that direction. Now we just want you to stay. So you rotate to stop the ball. The ball is now yours. You, you know, V-backed to get inside the big. The big is now yours. So every guy that did that, you're all in on the rotation. With the help coming over, what's kind of the trigger on when to come and stop the ball? When do you want them coming to stop the ball and making the peel switch? Well, you know, for us, communication, I, I, for anybody, communication is going to be important, uh, whatever your defensive system is. So to your point, you know, there has to be uh, a good level of communication between those two players. But, you know, we don't have a hard rule. We just have, you know, generalizations and let them figure it out. So, and it depends, right? Like if I'm a super long athlete, I can probably stay with the ball a little bit longer than if you're me, right? Like, so if I get sucked down below the free throw line and then I peel, I might not get out to that perimeter guy in time for a simple drawn kick, right? So, you know, whatever that is, like if I'm 6'8 and long and I can take it to, you know, inside the paint because I can get out to that three-point line, then great. 
And, you know, with our bigs or whoever it is that's rotating to stop the ball, you know, it depends on the area. So to go through those scenarios again, if it's the middle peel, then it's going to depend on, on that nail help, right? So if I have Steph Curry, I'm not going to be planted at the nail, right? So, like, my reaction to that is going to be very different than if I have, you know, Rondo or, or whoever it is. Same with the corner. So, you know, if I have an elite shooter, I'm going to be, you know, a little more hesitant to come on to a corner peel. That's why we have multiple options on, on how to do it. And if I'm on the ball, then I'm just waiting to hear who's the person that eventually came to do it. So, you know, there are some unique situations where we're, you know, intentionally sending it. And I alluded to it before. Sometimes the players on their own will, will do that. Because, again, usually matchup driven or sometimes, you know, we have, uh, I don't want to say overzealous, but very eager help defenders. They really, you know, they want it to come their way and they'll communicate that. But there's a fluidity to it for sure about when to get off the ball and when to come take it. What's really interesting to me, what you just said about overeager potential guys coming from the help. I would imagine you're not like in a closed stance denial for the most part in your help side because these guys need to be able to get off and come in peel switch. And then I guess the second part of my question is about angles and teaching the angles of the guy coming to take a ball handler coming downhill into the paint. And that, you know, it's not a normal closeout uh, kind of nice shell drill type of situation. So how do you teach that? And then, you know, how much are angles important in that? Yeah. I mean, a couple of things there. So you know, the angle part of it is important, but in a lot of ways, surprisingly, is more important with the guy who peels off. Okay. So I think like your natural instincts as the helper will kind of take over. Um, there are few circumstances to be careful of. Corner peels, like if a guy really runs up almost like a, like a run and jump type of situation, uh, you can be vulnerable because the peel guy won't get to the corner in time just because of the distance. So, you know, we talk about like helping across from the corner as much as possible, but we have athletes that are pretty aggressive with it and, and they're able to pull that off. Likewise, you know, your question about denials, we have, got, you know, I mean, I'm fortunate, right? I coach, I coach an African national team and, and we have some athletes who can cover ground. So we have guards who, and it's great to watch, they will be in one pass away denial positions and can recognize somebody beaten and get off of that. And it's great because now the, the ball handler thinks that he didn't have that as a release point. Uh, and so we've seen some really great things come from that, but obviously the level of athleticism you need to pull that off uh, is high. I think in general that I would recommend that you're in gaps rather than in denials to your point that that you're in uh, easier positions to help and to your point of angles that your angles are a little bit easier uh, and then the last part of that so the peel angles are important because especially when you first roll this out the offense is thinking that they have safe passes to certain areas and you're coming from behind their sight line into those passing angles so you really want to be dialed in to try to get deflections 
And we get a lot of them that way. So that would be normal teaching, right? If you saw somebody come off strong side corner, you would think this is the easiest pitch for three ever. And suddenly a guy from your blind side comes in and steals that pass. And it's the same thing, right? If your elbow drive baseline, you think you've got a diagonal skip that's, you know, you're, you're kind of trained to almost throw it blindly. And now here we are peeling from your blind spot into that passing lane. So, so we definitely talk a lot about that with those guys that peel. In my head, you know, visualizing obviously the, the rotations and the clockwork. So I guess the importance of the, the second guy in the rotation of, does he have to kind of play a zone or gap for a second while the guy's peeling off? Or how do you teach, I guess, the far backside help side guy um, as everybody's rotating over and if there's, you know, a skip or there's something on the backside, his responsibilities? Yeah, well, you know, and, and this is, to be honest, something that I'm still tinkering with. Uh, you know, I don't know how familiar your, your listeners are with nexting, but, you know, next pick yeah. and roll coverage, yeah. if you see, right, like, you know, the Spanish teams that do it, do it different ways, you know, Croatian national team, where, you know, depending on a lot of variables, but they could either just come to the next guy or recover to the corner, right? And to me, I think that's, to answer your question, where you get to. I haven't had the practice time with our national team where we're like 100% rock solid, but to anybody that has like a full season of practices under their belt with the system, that's how I would answer that, is that your weak side rotation is based on who are the two people standing over there. So, you know, if, if it's Steph Curry in, in that slot position and he's like the main focus, then the peel can end up going opposite corner okay. in order to ensure that we took that away. So the absolute is that you're sinking inside the big. So that, you know, there's no debate on that. Like that is, that is definitely going to happen. And then, you know, to your point, like that, you know, that weak side, you know, if you want to use Kloppenberg eye, you know, that top guy in the eye should think of it as a zone. You know, he should think that he has two guys in his area, that opposite corner and the opposite slot. And they should get to the point, they being the guy that's peeling and him, where they can identify where he should go. Okay. And, and I, you know, it doesn't have to be – scripted it could be okay tonight it's this way or whatever it may be coach you bring up an interesting point or talking about next but also with stagger screens will you then lend this self to the peel switch i mean similar to the next as they come off the stagger if you're chasing and yeah have kind of make the peel switch and run off and the help will come from the passer in this case yeah absolutely yeah yeah, we do it a lot. I mean, you can see those situations happen in a lot of things. And to be honest, like if you, you know, if you study uh, the NBA, I mean, Miami was doing this ages ago, like Pat Riley days of sort of trapping the stagger, but then the guard right after they got the trap would peel off because they would just throw these wild passes, you know, because suddenly they catch and there's a big on them. They don't know what's going on. So yeah, I mean, we, we applied this concept to every action. I mean, okay, and the same with the pick and roll then? Are you, what are you doing? Are you really trying to have the big men 
be less or more involved in the pick and roll, knowing if, you know, you have the capability of peel switching on any sort of drive? So <laughs> I think pick and roll is like, we'll have to do another podcast on that. <laughs> so they're, they're, the people, I'll say this, people have reached out to me, um, NBA coaches, with the notion of, of applying peel concepts in exactly the way you just said. So for sure, you could do that, right? You could just treat ball screen as getting beat off the dribble and that, that the rotations would reflect that and that your goal is to contain it within the perimeter and that you could drop your big yeah. way, way back because he's like the absolute last line of protection. So you could definitely do that. It's coming off like I'm being coy, but honestly, it'll just take us down a rabbit hole Yeah, uh, that I think is like really different. And I think pick and roll is a little bit unique and should be looked at in that manner um, versus some of the other things we're talking about. Coach Milicic in Poland has an interesting, you know, one, two, two zone where, you know, they're dropping the big men back in coverage, but then the top two guards are just, it's almost like they're just peel switching with each other on any sort of on-ball screen, which kind of make me think of potentially where you were going with that, Pat, as far as yeah. you know, coverages and, and coming from different angles. Yeah. Coach, my follow-up too with Pat, and I guess not how to beat this, but what gives it problems I would imagine like backside cutting actions like 45s and drifts, you know, while a drive is happening and there's a lot of cutting to the rim, how guys navigate through, you know, peeling off and then trying to get to a cutter. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think all, like all the things that make any offense good make this challenging, yeah. right? So it, like it's not like a secret sauce. Yeah, like the more your team cuts, the more your team passes – the harder it is. And that's why I've like, I've been eager to see it applied in the U S Yeah, because I'm using it at, you know, at levels where people do pass and cut a lot. Yeah. Right. Versus, you know, the United States where you, you really have like very talented, but primary ball handling scorers. And I feel like this defense is kind of built to stop that, you know? So if you have a guy and he just wants to, you know, have space in order to go do his thing, this is going to be really effective. You know, now to your point, if, if the ball is moving, you're not quite sure where the, you know, where the blow by is going to happen from and who's going to cut once it happens, it becomes more challenging for sure. Will you guys then force a direction are, are you a no middle a no baseline team to maybe aid and where possibly you know the peels will be coming from or is it just kind of we play them straight up and just we got to be ready to react um you know initially we were the peel grew out of no middle just because that you know i mean like everybody else in the world like you know you're either a pack line guy or not right so yeah. um and then i realized that Sometimes it was better when it came to the middle. So, you know, I think a lot of it depends on, uh, you know, knowing your personnel, KYP. And, and that's where I would apply it. So I, I think, you know, if you have a guy that's great going to his right hand, it just doesn't make sense to me that you force him baseline onto his right hand simply because that's your team rule. Yeah. So 
you know, with when there are certain guys that have like really glaring tendencies that we have highlighted in our scouting report, that trumps everything. So actually I heard, you know, reference John Patrick again. I heard John say this and I liked it. You know, one-on-one defense trumps team defense is how he phrased it. And I love that concept. And it goes to what you were talking about earlier, Patrick. Like the best defense in the world is guard your own man. No. Right? No. Everybody <laughs> stops their own guy. We're good. So we don't want to lose track of that. So if you were guarding this player one-on-one, how would you guard it? And if we know he's awesome going to his right hand, even though the ball is on the sideline, like, does it make sense? And I think, you know, the days of, like, single-sided defense are, are kind of moving out because uh, what it did was took advantage of, at the time, guards who really weren't comfortable making those skips. But now you just I – mean, it's like second-nature pass to them, right? Like, a diagonal skip or a baseline skip to them is not hard. So – I think when you put them on their primary hand and now they can score primary hand or pass primary hand, you know, to these opposite areas, that's harder than if you get them on their weak hand for some guys. Now, some players, yeah. right, like it doesn't matter. They're, they're going to be good either way. But so that to me dictates it. And then the second part is the space between the help. So, you know, if you're, if you have a nail guy in position, why send it to the baseline when you've got a guy there? And that's when the level of communication becomes important. So whether that's the offense's poor spacing or your ability because of personnel to really get off of a not so great shooter or the athleticism of the help guy and where he can position itself, those are all factors. So we're we're not a no middle we're not a no yeah. you know it's what makes sense in this this situation coach we'll leave the peel switching now and move on to some other stuff we appreciate you taking the time on it and we'll definitely make sure we link to your your video and you know yeah. all that information so people can obviously further their study of it yeah no and, and again I, I i mean i come i come off as as terrible when i say it but but i just think seeing it on film really help like it's yeah. really hard like to just talk your way through it because it's, yeah. it's a little foreign of a concept thank you for breaking some of those things down because i know it helps us and the people listening as yeah. well so well we, we'd like to play a, a have a fun little segment with you that we've done with a lot of our guests called start sub or sit and what we'll do is we'll we've prepared a, a few different you know, scenarios or topics and uh, you can just let us know which one you'd start, you'd sub or sit and we can just have a little fun with it and go from there. All right. All right. We okay? So an easy one to start. So start, sub or sit the FIBA World Cup, the Olympics or Afro basket. Oh, wow. Uh, You know, it's not as simple as you would think. (laughs) I mean, the Olympics is special. I think I'd have to start the Olympics. And what made the World Cup cool, which also makes AfroBasket cool, is that it's only basketball, right? So, you know, the difference of the Olympics and you're kind of, you know, part of this bigger thing. And, I mean, for me, I would say AfroBasket because while the World Cup is a great experience – everybody's is, is spread out or like, you know, the teams were in different cities. 
they didn't come together, you know, until the, the last stages. And after basket, everybody's in the same spot. Like, everybody's competing for the same thing. And I think the margins are much smaller, right? Like, you know, there are a lot of teams that have a legit chance at it. You're not going to see, like, some teams that are just, you know, David and Goliath matchups. So, yeah, that's my sub and World Cup. Sorry. Sorry, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get a call from FIBA. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Coach. Um, my start, sub, and sit. The pregame speech, the halftime speech, or the postgame? I'm definitely sitting postgame. Um, <laughs> you know, emotions are high in, in either way. If you're coming off of a tough loss – I think you got to check yourself to not go in there and, and just be super negative or say something you'll regret. And likewise, you come off a big win and everybody's feeling good. Like don't go in there and, and be something that you haven't been. I think honestly, all the great coaches are really good at keeping it even keeled, you know, eyes on the prize and pacing yourself. And there are a lot of games and try not to ride that emotional roller coaster. Oof. I, I'd start halftime. Uh, I think important adjustments can be made that are valuable and can win you games. I would sub pregame. There's some people who are really, really good at motivational speeches prior to a game. There's a time and place for it for sure. But over the long haul, right, I don't think you can keep reaching, you know, into that bag of tricks. Whereas halftime adjustments, I think is something you got to do every game. In terms of your kind of pregame approach, how much information do you like to give the guys what do you feel is kind of like the good amount that you think guys are going to retain and actually listen to well you know every scenario is different so you know when is how much time did you have to prepare going into that game you know if we're in afrobasket for example we're playing every other day or i mean actually all the competitions you listed we're playing every other day so those are quicker turnaround times if we're you know, if it's a league, you know, BBL game in Germany and we didn't have a Champions League game and we had a whole week of prep for that opponent, then our approach, I think, is going to be more detailed. So I think you balance that out, you know, from game to game. You know, for us, personnel is huge. Opponent personnel is huge. I think, you know, actions is just, I mean, if teams have, you want to be prepared for things that might hurt you, right? So, if there's an action that you know from previously playing them that gave you problems or you are concerned and feel it's likely you would see that action, you want to be prepared. But I think a lot of time we, we spend maybe a little too much on, on opponent sets when we don't really know how much we'll see them. Right. Like, so we, we want our guys to be dialed and then, they throw a curveball at us and they, and they don't even run the play against this. Right. And then we're like, Oh, so if you, you know, if there's like a base, whatever, and you know, you're going to see it great. But at the end of the day, you know, I go back to what I said, if you stop your man one-on-one, you're in good shape. So I think player tendencies are important. And then on the other end of that, like who, who can we attack? What are the matchups that we can exploit? Coach start sub or sit. These are, transition offensive actions for your five man a rim run for your five a drag screen on the side or somewhere just a drag ball screen or using him as a reversal to then get action on the second side 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I have to preface that that really depends on who that five man is. Sure. Okay. Right. So I think any offensive action needs to be putting players in a position to be successful. So if I have some super athlete who is great at catching on the run, and then I tell him to run into drag screens or stay behind his reversal, I'm not being a good coach. You know, I mean, Pat, you're a German guy. So like, you know, Martin Brunig, right? Like Martin was an unbelievable rim runner and he was a little bit undersized when we played him at the five. So it just would be silly to not try to take advantage of it on the other, you know, on the other side of that. So I know that's a total cop out, uh, but I mean, it really is that like, I, I think if you can cash in on a rim run, just because that's a layup, Right. That that start, but you you got to have a guy that you know can realistically run ahead of his man, realistically catch it on the run. Which I I think people underestimate how hard that is. Right, you know, on a on a like full sprint to be that big and to be able to catch and finish is hard. You know, so those are all positives. Uh, and then likewise, I mean, reversing it is great. But if I have a guy who you know has bad hands and is a terrible passer. I don't want him reversing it. <laughs> I think moving into, you know, weak side action is always a good thing. So just based on my core principle, right? Like if, if we can, if we couldn't get a layup, let's explore second side. So that'd probably be my sub. And then, you know, first side drag would probably be my, my sit just because again, like if we couldn't cash in with pace. I feel like we don't, you know, we should try to move the defense a little bit more before we, we get the, ball screen yeah no thanks coach obviously a very uh, it depends nuanced question uh, i know some coaches just have a philosophy but we just love to set the drag or just love to rim run or i've definitely coached with coaches that like the ball has to be reversed like they just want it to get reversed on the second side so it sounds like maybe you could potentially start all three of them if it's it's true i mean I, you know Everybody does it a different way, yep. which makes you know, which makes it unique. But certainly, I'm of the notion that you know, offense is catered by your personnel for sure. Yep. All right, coach. Start, sub, or sit in terms of post defensive strategy. Either playing one on one in the post, doubling on the pass into the post, or doubling on the first dribble. You already know what my answer is going to be, right, Pat? <laughs> It depends on who the guy is. It depends on, on the pass. It depends on who you have. Uh, if you have a, a I guess the question is, do you, if obviously it's a, it's a post player, you gotta, he's going to score down there. So I guess, do you value just, Hey, let him work his way, get a two pointer just, and we want to keep the pace or is it, no, we got a double. And then how do you like to approach your double? I'm like I'm like the worst participant in this game ever, right? It's to be <laughs> light and fun, and I'm like turning it off. No, we lo- this is good. We love no, it. No, we this, love is, <laughs> this is the conversations uh, we want to have. Well, again, I think there are a lot of things that go into that. I think points per possession in the post typically is lower than a lot of other shots that your opponent might get up. So because of that, it's rare that I would do it in general. Um, now what is the matchup in the post, right? Like, are we caught on a mismatch? Is this, is this a situation where 
okay, maybe in general points per possession are low, but in this specific situation, we, we deem it as a threat and need to address it right away. So that would affect it. And what kind of passer is the big? So, you know, like, like a Jokic, for example, I mean, you come on the catch, he's going to carve you up, right? You know, so I, I think all those kind of play into it. What kind of athletes do you have on the perimeter? <laughs> so I know this is such a cop-out, but, but it's really how I think, right? Like, so yeah. Nigeria, I mean, we had Ben Uzo, who was just unbelievable at digging at the ball from the perimeter, you know, like crazy long arms, great instincts. So, you know, to be like a traditional baseline, you know, uh, a double of the post and take him out of the ability to do it didn't make sense, right? If I have like midgets up there who aren't good at digging and I'm like, no, we're coming from the top, that also doesn't make sense. So I think you really do. You got to spend a lot of time evaluating who you have and who you're playing against and, and try to figure out, you know, what makes the most sense. So, okay. uh, you know, total, I didn't even give a start. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. I got to at least do that. I would say don't double start, uh, double on the dribble sub double on the catch set. All right. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> uh, Pat, my last one, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to give you one that maybe is a uh, less contextual, I know, I'm a little gun shy now. Yeah, 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 I, no. yeah, I thought this would be like pizza, hamburgers, French fries. <laughs> yeah, well, we, yeah we, we've got those in the bag too we can go to. Uh, but <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to go like straight skill sets. So a guard that has maybe these straight skill sets. A terrific shooter, a terrific ball handler, or being a terrific passer. I think in today's so I would go shooter, start, Passer, sub, dribbler, sit. I think in today's game, you know, people are starting to understand the value of that. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you got to have a guy that can break down and create. And I mean, if you watch the NBA, right, if right. you took that out of the equation, they'd all be standing around. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, there's huge value to that. But when we say generically speaking, like I think you can get by with one guy uh, and if you watch the NBA, that's kind of the deal, right? Like one guy that is can't be guarded one-on-one. Now if you surround him with shooting, he becomes really hard. And then now if those guys can also you know, move it so that you can't get at least the first rotation out taken care of, it, it, it becomes even harder. Okay. Yeah, I actually answered one. Uh, no, it's yeah. good. good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my my confidence is a little bit higher now going into this question. Yeah, come at it, ready, Dan. Dan, I'm going to steal yours. Steal it, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> All right, coach. Start, sub, or sit. Uh, one on one, two on two, or three on three. Uh, I would start three on three, sub two on two, sit one on one. I think three on three is great. I mean, that's that's like. That's my captain. <laughs> I just think you can create almost any basketball situation with three on three. You can really teach the reads from that, both on offense and defense. I think it, you can replicate the game in a lot of ways. And I work down from that number just because I, I think for me, don't get me wrong, like, you know, we talked about it in the last question. Like, you got to have a guy that can break down one on one. Like, you have to have it. Uh, and, and that's where one on one is 
you know, vitally important, but just that you're always instilling the concept of a team game, right? Like in the back of your mind, whether it's on defense or offense, that you can, we're trying to accomplish this with more than just ourselves uh, is something I always want to be emphasizing. To kind of build off the point, I mean, I agree. I mean, you need to one-on-one skills are important. You need, to, but I think too, with one-on-one, sometimes you lead into just taking bad shots because it's one-on-one. Where at least with two-on-two, you're also teaching like, hey, if you don't have a shot, pass the ball, or you know, like yeah. try to get open. And I think is maybe sometimes forgotten that you know, even just having the two-on-two has value in just yeah. You don't need to force a shot if you can still pass the ball. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, in San Antonio, we used to play uh, two-on-two pick-and-roll, and this is way ahead of the the thinking now, right? I mean, this is like 20 years ago Pop was doing this. You know, so the notion that two guys could guard a ball screen, right? Like, uh, to your point, you know, I think think there's a lot of value in that, you know, that to understand how, as a teammate, you can help and then how, as the primary guy – to rely on your teammate and work together is, is kind of basketball in a nutshell, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, coach, yeah, that was, that was great. I mean, I guess I could throw a fun one at you just to have, if you, if you want, <laughs> I, I was going to say start, sub or sit uh, German beer, Belgian beer or American IPA. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, Belgian is the sit. Cause that's an easy one. Cause I, I have not coached in Belgium and will not be in trouble. <laughs> for fitting them uh now anybody that's been to boise idaho uh would know that ipas are are highly valued here uh but my last name is voigt and i <laughs> bond so i think i gotta start start the german okay i I'd agree that's the kind of questions i was looking for yeah. <laughs> i know uh, <laughs> well Coach, to wrap up here, uh, and thank you for your time and just for, gosh, yeah. I mean, for answering all these questions. And I know these are very detailed and we really appreciate it. To wrap up, gosh, you've been in so many different spots as a coach. You've been in so many different countries. You've worked for so many great coaches. Could you maybe distill down a little bit of what makes someone an elite coach? Now, you've been around some really great coaches. And what's the, the difference between those guys that really get to an elite level? That's uh, a tough one. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of really, really good coaches in the world at all kinds of different levels. You know, some by choice, some, you know, maybe just didn't get the same number of breaks as others. You know, I would say sort of a common denominator of the great coaches that I've been around are probably common denominators almost all the coaches, but it starts with a passion for what you're doing, right? I think as with anything, like you can't excel at something that you're not passionate about. Obviously that's a love of basketball, but I think it goes beyond that. And it, it's a love of, of servant leadership. I think there's some unbelievable coaches who maybe aren't, I wouldn't say cut out, but like they just know in themselves that like that leadership part, like sliding over to that position is just not, what they would be passionate about, right? So you can still, you can be passionate about, about teaching and basketball and all these other things and still not, you know, not be a good head coach once you get that opportunity. Because it is like you're, you're taking on a responsibility that's different than any other role on the team. And I, I think it is, it's a unique person that's willing to take on that challenge 
and then how you approach it, right? So again, you know, I use that servant leadership. I think we hear about it quite a bit now, like your ability to connect with people is going to be more important than your ability to come up with peel switching or, or whatever it might be. And I think that stuff is really fun. And I think as coaches, you know, we can X and O forever, right? Like, right. I mean, gets our juices flowing and, and we're all excited and, ah, you know, we got this great play and we got this, but at the end of the day, if you take a group of guys and you get them to play as a team and to play with maximum effort and play unselfishly, you'll win. <laughs> like go down to the Y and steal the system that the, whatever the sixth grade boys are running and use that. But now getting the, you know, the principles we just talked about and you're going to win. And I think, you know, the really great coaches get that. And, and I know the younger version of myself didn't, you know, like I'd, I'd be studying, you know, the X's and O's of all these guys and like, Oh, you know, this is genius. And da, 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 da. And what I wasn't doing was studying the ability to communicate and connect. And as I got older, I began to appreciate that more and more and like seeing how these great coaches are able to connect with their players, are able to get guys to accept roles, able to you know get guys to put the team above their own individual goals. To me, that's the separator. How you push that, how you're able to do that is, is what makes a coach great. Thank you so much for tuning in to this edition. Please make sure to subscribe to the newsletter for further insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.